This is the tale of Elric, before he was called Woman Slayer. Before the final collapse of Melnibane. This is the tale of his rivalry with his cousin Yerkun, and his love for his cousin Cimmeril. Before that rivalry and that love brought Imeria, the dreaming city, crashing in flames, raped by the reavers from the young kingdoms. This is the tale of the two black swords, Stormbringer and Mornblade, and how they were discovered, and what part they played in the destiny of Elric and Melnibone. A destiny which was to shape a larger destiny, that of the world itself. This is the tale of when Elric was a king, the commander of dragons, fleets, and all the folk of that half-human race which had ruled the world for 10,000 years. This is a tale of tragedy, this tale of Melnibone, the Dragon Isle. This is a tale of monstrous emotions and high ambitions. This is a tale of sorceries and treacheries and worthy ideals, of agonies and fearful pleasures, of bitter love and sweet hatred. This is the tale of Elric of Melnibone. Much of it Elric himself was to remember only in his nightmares. Welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. In this episode, we're returning to Moorcock's most enduring character, arguably, the doomed lord of the Dragon Isle, Elric. We're picking up his tale by jumping forward 11 years to 1972's Elric of Melnibone. Because we're talking Elric, though, this also means we're in fact leaping backwards to the chronological beginning of the saga, as we find out a few more details behind his doomed efforts to rescue his beloved Cimmeril, take revenge on his dastardly cousin Yerkun and sack the dreaming city, dooming his kinsfolk to flame and ruin, not to mention spelling the end of poor old Divim Tarkan. By doing this, we're passing over the remainder of the 60s Elric stories for now, but we will come to them in good time, so, if for some reason you're hankering for us to get to Moonglum, Zarazenia, Thelebkana, or, I don't know, Brute of Lashmar, relax and be assured, we've got you. Once again, I'm going to dip into John Clute and John Grant's ridiculously massive encyclopedia of fantasy, hoping I don't do myself an injury getting it off the shelf, and take a look at what they have to say about Moorcock's brand of sword and sorcery, and Elric in particular, and I'm going to stitch together a couple of bits. Moorcock's first sword and sorcery tales date from the 1950s, before the primitive notion of the ghost worlds had begun to evolve into the concept of the multiverse. But a volume like Sojan, which assembles this early work, shows how early Moorcock had begun to inject into routine action tales the characteristic sense of exploratory newness and of belatedness, of high-sounding awe and retrospective irony that would mark his mature writings. From the first, Moorcock managed to convey his complex reaction to the genre in a confidingly available tone of voice. As a result, he almost single-handedly created the UK brand of sword and sorcery, This accomplishment is now taken for granted, 
and Moorcock's tone of voice has become the default manner in which sword and sorcery tales are properly told in the UK. I'll skip on here a bit, as the two Johns have got a lot more to say about the concept of the multiverse and the eternal champion that would result in us getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But they go on to say, The figure of Elric is a direct parody of Robert E. Howard's Conan. He is an albino weakling, introspective, haunted, treacherous, and the tool of his own soul-drinking sword Stormbringer, itself a parody of the normal sword and sorcery weapon. Melnibane, like Hyperborea, is a fable vision of prehistoric Europe. Elric's treachery causes its total downfall. His humorless and unrelenting Veltsmerch make him easy to mock, but he remains a remarkably vivid, iconic figure. Now, I know Loz and I may have had a bit of a laugh at Elric's expense previously, but we were reading a story written by a 21-year-old, albeit a great story. And I find that Clute and Grant perhaps are a little bit hard on the Percy fellow, though. The novel Elric of Malnibonair was the product of a much more mature Moorcock in his 30s, already with probably 25 or 30 books under his belt by that point, and from memory it's a far superior work to his earlier efforts. Furthermore, the Clute and Grant Encyclopedia of Fantasy is already 22 years old, or my edition is, so it doesn't take into account the Moonbeam Roads trilogy or the more lately increasing churn of new comics, graphic novels, adaptations and spin-offs, some written or co-written by Moorcock himself. Elric's now been in the cultural zeitgeist for almost 60 years, and there seem to be few signs of this slowing. I also wish they'd just say melancholy instead of Veltsmerch. Being from all, I've enough problems speaking English proper without having to cope with German. But anyway, let's see if my memory is up to snuff as we dive in to book one of Elric of Melnibane. <laughs> Okay, welcome to episode three, I believe this will be. Loz has returned, three. and we're going to discuss Elric of Melnibane. Or Melnibane. Or Melnibane. We have chosen today as our drinks of choice a plum and cinnamon gin liqueur. Which, which I think is very pleasant. Very delicious. Yeah, yeah. And we also have a backup Cambridgeshire Citrus, Citra IPA, single variety American hop. Yeah, so we won't advertise where it's from, yeah. but, you know, pretty but, good. I, but I think it's more than fair, given that uh, about half of our audience is American. So, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. Right, I think the elephant in the room that we have to get to straight away is since we last recorded The Dreaming City, it's been announced that there's going to be an Elric series, or there may be an Elric series. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's ten years since the Vikes brothers optioned the rights to an Elric film. The guys behind um, American Pie. Oh yeah, which you, you would expect those two to dovetail quite nicely, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, American Pie. I'm slightly disappointed they never got it made, because that would have been interesting. Yeah. But yeah. ten years on, we've now got the possibility of a Hawkmoon TV series by the BBC and an Elric series um, coming up potentially on some kind of streaming service. So all of a sudden, the golden age of telly appears to be catching up with what we all know. It's the 1960s. That, yeah, absolutely. That Moorcock really is the person who they should be adapting. Because, I mean, how much scope is there? I think my, my major worry, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, is the Elric stuff, for example. Um, how new is it going to be for kind of non-Moorcock fans mm-hmm. when they're used to Targaryens? Mm. Who pretty much are 
oh, I'm not going to diss uh, Mr. Martin, obviously. Yeah. But I, I think he's, you know, there's a few seeds there, isn't there, that you've gone yeah. from Maldabony into Targaryens, especially the way they are in the TV show with blonde hair and... Well, weirdly, you know, when I was reading this again, and I was reading the bits with Yerkoon, and we'll get to this, but when I was reading the bits with Yerkoon, the way he was behaving, the first thing I was thinking was the Nobed Targaryen book. Yeah, so me, yeah. At, at the beginning of Game what of Thrones. What was he called? Ysarian? I can't remember. Vicerian, Ysarian. Vicerian, yeah. yeah Frank. Massive yeah. wanker. He was, he was um, yeah, he wasn't the nicest man, was he? Yeah, but, but the behaviour towards yeah, his yeah, sister was, was all like, oh. Yeah, it was all... That's what mm. I was thinking when I when I was reading it. it was like, mm. and, yeah. and that's that's the kind of worry that I have is you know, Game of Thrones was that crossover piece. If I'm going to quote um, somebody from Parks and Rec, I've been watching <laughs> recently, yeah. um, and yeah, I think when we read these books, they were kind of like new and mm. fresh, and it was. And I'm just worried that if you make a male, you know, Elke Malavoni or whatever. Yeah. That's some people going, oh, it's a bit like Game of Thrones, isn't it? And yes, that's, that's the kind of worry that... And we've now got the risk that they'll go, oh, it looks a bit like Harold of Rivera from The Witcher. I'd have yeah, no idea was, if, no idea if I pronounced that correctly, but have you seen the pictures of Henry Cavill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the other one as well, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I've not read those, but I, I have listened to people Are they comment... they by Pol- that, Polish writer? Right? Yeah, and I have listened to people comment that say that they're heavily derivative. Yeah, I like the game. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think you're, you're right. Again, that's another white-haired kind of um, mm. hero. I mean, the difference is... The, the worry is, if you don't make Elric different enough, mm. he is going to be another white-haired but red-eyed mm. hero stroke anti-hero mm. in the style of blah, 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 blah. And yeah. it's a shame because he came first. Yeah. I, I think one of the... Things that would have the two things I think they have to nail entirely to make it different enough to carry the day. One is, and we'll discuss some of these again when we get into the the first part of Elric of Melnibane, is um, his attitude. Yeah, yeah, slightly <laughs> uh, unusual to certain things. And the other is um, stripy loon pants. No stripy loon pants. No deal, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, that's later episodes, isn't it? It is. Most of this True. is this is black leather, mm. which you know. Yeah. Well, he's wearing he's wearing some pleasant yellow. Yeah, yeah. Some, garments. Some, yeah. But anyway, we'll get to that shortly. Yeah. But the interesting thing about this being announced as well is when I originally put together my kind of half-assed um, initial script for what this podcast could possibly talk about. Mm. One of the elements I had was so a, a, a section called Large Sharks Ostentatious Couch. Which I think is, is a smart Where we could title. discuss yeah. potential either rea- realistic casting or fantasy casting. So I think now is the time to have the first official launch of yeah. Lord Shack's Ostentatious Couch. I think we could probably segue into Hawkmoon as well. Mm, yeah, very possibly. Um, John Wayne. Yeah. You know. yeah. John Wayne, Brian Blessed, Hawkmoon's done. Yeah, not necessarily now without, like, well, you know, with Scorsese's kind mm. of. Uh, yeah, okay. Right, well, today, Lord Shark's ostentatious couch is just over here, and as you can see, it's basically just a solid block of cement. Mm. And Lord Shark is an unusual man. Yeah, it's not overly comfortable, but let's try and <laughs> try and get through this as best we can before we retire back to our evening chairs. Indeed. So, now, we've been having quite a few conversations on Twitter 
with uh, the people who engage with us uh, regarding the show. Um, but one thing I do remember, and we'll go into those in a moment, but one thing I do remember from back years ago was there was a forum, I don't know if you ever came across it, called Mocox Miscellany. I did, so yeah, I went on it occasionally. Yeah, I did yeah. from time to time, and round about the time I did go on that, Michael Mocock had expressed his number one preference for an actor to play Elric. Really? No, Other people really were saying Paul Bettany and, and things like that mm-hmm. at the time, which I think wouldn't have been a bad call. But his call was an East Enders actor at the time called Jack Ryder. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Mm. Mm. Not so much. Yeah, no, I'm not, in, not entirely convinced. Jack to be honest. Ryder in a wig. Yeah. It's not for everyone, is it? Yeah, and if, if you see a picture of Jack Ryder now. <laughs> Not Do you reckon sure. might have just been asked it and he was just like, I'm the absolute. It was on telly. It was on telly, yeah. A, but funnily enough, a uh, friend of the show, the pastor, mm. used to be a regular on the uh, Mococks Miscellany forum. Mm, right, so okay. maybe if, he, if you're listening, pastor, drop us a line and let us know what the gab was back then because I'm sure there was lots and lots of other talk as well. And um, some other favourite Twitter suggestions uh, Dennis Detweiler, the Delta Green writer. Uh, suggested Tilda Swinton. Yeah, Tilda Swinton was always probably my first go-to, but it wouldn't work because I, in my opinion, because I think Tilda Swinton would look brilliant and she's a brilliant actress anyway, actor. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, But I do think my worry would be they'd want to make it into Elrica. You know what I mean? Just, Just because people would be... I'm just thinking about kind of non-fantasy fans which you have to draw in. If you're spending like millions of quid, pounds, you, you basically have to draw in other audiences, don't you? And if you've yeah. got Tilda Swinton as the main one, you'll be going, well, why is that woman playing the, the male character? Yeah. You'd hope everybody's groovy enough for it. Yeah. But my worry is that, you know what studios are like? Yeah. They're, they're so risk-averse anyway. Mm. It'd just be a no-goer. But she'd look brilliant. She'd look great, and I'm sure she'd do a great job. Yeah, she would. Um, but it just raises that question of, is Elric ever described as androgynous? He's, he's described as having sensual lips and uh, yeah. great eyebrows. But, but he's, he's, he's still... <laughs> he's a bloke, isn't he? He's, he's a bloke. Um, yeah. I think my, my probably consolation prize would there would be Tilda Swinton for Ariok or certain yeah, yeah. manifestations of Ariok, basically giving him a hard time. Well, she, she was in... Um, Constantine in the film, weren't she? Yeah, she was really good in it. And she was the... She played Gabriel, didn't she? Gabriel, that was mm. it, and she was brilliant in that. Yeah. And that was an androgynous character. Yeah. On uh, the subject the of... Film, Ar- not so much. Yeah, 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 not worry about that one. Um, on the subject of Ariok, uh, Premi wants Nick Cage for Ariok. Possibly a bit tongue-in-cheek there. Um, because, but, you know, Arca says, I'm down with that, because Cage range. Cage yeah. range. You just have to have Nick... Nick Cage in anything anyway, yeah. even if you just tangle bones with yeah. a wig on. Yeah, yeah, just get him in. In if, fact, yeah, let's go with that. Have you seen Mandy? I haven't, but I really want to see oh, it. You need to see Mandy. I've seen the trailer and that was enough to yeah. draw me into it. It, it, is, it does not disappoint. Yeah. Um, and also the trailer for Colour Out Space has just come out recently. Yes. So I'm very excited about that. I think Cage yeah. is in a particularly interesting part of his career. Why well, don't he, he can do whatever he wants, can't he? It's strange, isn't it? I, I was looking at Nick Cage trailers, the, well, no, slightly off topic here, but I was yeah. going, looking at Nick Cage trailers for 2019 films the other day, and there's about eight of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. He just seems to be just enjoying himself. He's absolutely he? crapping them out. Yeah, just like, yeah, he's, yeah. He probably needs like an extension or something. Yeah. He's not been divorced, has he, recently? I, th- I think I think it was tax bills. He had to sell his massive mammoth comic collection to pay tax bills. 
And maybe yeah. now it's just at the point where it's just like, oh, I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Dirk of the Grognard Files offered a fantasy casting pitch of uh, the Berlin Years' David Bowie. Yeah, that'd be good. Which I think would, would certainly have worked. Yeah. Practically not going to work now. No. But it's a, it's a good effort. No. Yeah. But they could always replace it with a massive steaming kettle. Yeah. Yeah. That might um, work. Yeah. Someone will get that. Um, <laughs> Dirk went on to say the tragic naivety that he presented in The Man Who Fell to Earth would have been perfect. Fair, fair, fair play, I think. Fair call. Yeah, yeah. He, he would have been great. But, um, yeah. I think the, the problem is, is... If you look at any actors out there, because I was, I was thinking about Moonglum, because, you know, the, everybody will just go for anybody who's got red hair. Yeah. But, you know, people can wear wigs yeah. or dye the hair. Yeah. And people do, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, just a little bit of Ron Weasley, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that was what it, wasn't it? As soon as, as soon as you look at Moonglum casting, it mm. was like, oh, let's get um, Big Ron in. Yeah. Um, no. Because <laughs> 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 for a number of reasons, you know, bless him, he was great as Mr. Yeah. Weasley, but not for me. I I was thinking about this earlier, and Andy Circus sprung to mind mm. just because of his teeth, really. Yeah, yeah, I think that would work because he he's kind of you want to be a bit roguish, don't you? You do. I think he could probably pull that off. Yeah, he might look a bit rubbish in a red wig, but you know, who knows? Mm. I, t- I tell you. All, if we're talking fantasy casting purely for the time being, Michael J. Pollard. Now, I think he died fairly recently, but when he was young, do you remember Bonnie and Clyde? They had that weird, ugly little mate who went with them. Yeah. The Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway film. Michael J. Pollard's fantasy casting would have been excellent. But anyway, that's fantasy casting. Keha, formerly of Dissecting Wells, raised a very good point in that costumiers may have a problem if they do go purist. Because it might end up looking like a bizarre... 60s Carnaby Street uh, manifestation of a fantasy movie but that, well, that would, would be ace, that surely. would be amazing <laughs> that would be amazing and um, I don't know if you ever saw the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries I did they yeah. really struck for the fences on the costume in, in that show yeah. it was brilliant it was glorious another piece of casting realistic casting this time the pastor made an interesting call a guy called Eamon Farron who played like a deranged villain in Twin Peaks The Return. He was the young kid who... Did he run over a child or something? Anyway, if you check out Eamon Farrell yeah. and look up photographs of him, there's a couple of photos, a couple of publicity shots where he looks absolutely spot on. As Elric. As Elric. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and then um, somebody else countered with the Skarsgård who played yeah, the clown I think, yeah. in it. I think those two, interchangeably, Yaku and was, Elric... Was Skarsgård the one who was in... Um, True Blood. Yeah. Yeah. He, oh no, that was the other one. That was the one I went, went on to play Tarzan. Yeah. This is the youngest Skarsgård. If you're going to make a but film. But he's got super sensual lips. If you're going to make a film, he'd probably be in it, though, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, the main thing is is how they're going to treat the Malnabonians. Because you've got. You know, are you, are you going to make them all look like elves? What are you going to well, do? Well, you know what? At that point, let's depart Low yeah. Shack's ostentatious couch because it's making my ass hurt. <laughs> let's get to our easy chairs and, and start the pickup on, on Elric of Melnibonet because Indeed. it really does lead straight into that conversation because it we does. had this conversation on the Dreaming City, didn't we, where yeah. it's basically described as a bloke dressed outlandishly. A massive chair. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, for a second, let's just discuss our editions that we're working with. You've got, what year, what year is that? 
Uh, I've got the um, 1972 Hutchinson Publishing Group. Oh, it's Arrow. Oh. Arrow Books. So that's after the year it was published. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas mine's a 1989 Grafton Books edition. Okay. So yours has got the bright blue, red slanty-eyed um, Elric with a giant chin. The chin is massive, isn't it? The chin it? is enormous. It's and astonishing. He's, he's pulling uh, Zoolander blue steel. He is. So it's got like a lovely uh, one of the battle barges at the bottom. Yeah. Which is nice. And a couple of swords. Yeah. Whereas mine is the, um, the classic Grafton Michael Whelan, where Elric is looking... A little bit emo. He, he seems to be wearing little more than a torn vest, some underpants, and the 10% of his trousers that are left. Yeah, I, I had that one as well. Yeah. yeah, and he's, uh, he's embracing Stormbringer and looking particularly... He's looking at me like he knows something I don't. I'm not... Yeah. Uh, I, I like Michael Whelan, but I'm not overly keen on this cover. I've maybe got it's, he's just done the splits. Yeah, yeah. So I'll quickly read the introduction to book one. On the island kingdom of Malnibane, all the old rituals are still observed, though the nation's power has waned for 500 years. And now her way of life is maintained only by her trade with the young kingdoms and the fact that the city of Imria has become the meeting place of merchants. Are those rituals no longer useful? Can the rituals be denied and doom avoided? One who would rule in Emperor Elric's stead prefers to think not. He says that Elric will bring destruction to Malnibane by his refusal to honour all the rituals. And now opens the tragedy which will close many years from now and precipitate the destruction of this world. So let's get into our spoilery discussion of Elric of Malnibane. While I... So, published in 1972, it requires comparatively little explanation, um, being a completely new and retrospective Elric novel at the time. Yeah. Um... So as a result of this reframe, the 60s Elric books, things like Steeler of Souls, Singing Citadel and Stormbringer, would subsequently be largely revised and reordered yeah. to try and bring it in line with this new I wonder what, what kind of caused him to write it? When I say caused him, what Yeah. Um, what was the catalyst? Because yeah. all the other short stories pretty much are the or novellas trying to... Yeah, yeah. And by this point, he'd done the first Coram series. He'd mm. done... The first four Hawkman books. So maybe he just hit that point where he wanted to revise it, revisit it, mm. revisit old things that he wanted to correct because from this point on, every time it gets republished, it gets revised yeah, yeah. pretty much. Um, because once he started reordering things, after this was published in the 70s, that's when Grafton Stroke Panther started publishing their editions and putting them in chronological order rather than publication order, which meant that you would never again get a published Elric book called, for example, The Singing Citadel or yeah. The Stealer of Souls, because then we end up with this first effort at a chronological order to Elric books, with Elric of Melnibane, Sailor on the Seas of Fate, Weird of the White Wolf, The Vanishing Tower, Bane of the Black Sword, Stormbringer, and Elric at the End of Time. And that held pretty much until he did... Which did he do first? Fortress of the Pearl or Revenge of the Rose? Of the Pearl, yeah. So then he does a Fortress of the Pearl, which then needs to get dropped in. And that was between. That's when he's in his wandering. Yep. Yeah. Tell you what, we'll get to, yeah, get to yeah. Fortress of the Pearl. Good God, God help us. God, God, God help us, we will get to Fortress of the Pearl. I'm looking forward to rereading it, actually. Um, but then, of course, later on, you've got the Millennium Editions, which is the same as all this, but with Fortress of the Pearl and Revenge of the Rose dropped in. Yeah. And further revisions to make them more consistent. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, 
it's quite easy to to get straight into Elrica Melbourne because we don't have to kind of explain. For example, part of this was originally called a different thing and yeah, is yeah, in a different yeah. collection. Book one kicks off with a straight up description of Elric. Do you want to read that or shall I? I'll let you. Okay. It is the colour of a bleached skull, his flesh, and the long hair which flows below his shoulders is milk white. From the tapering beautiful head stare two slanting eyes, crimson and moody, and from the loose sleeves of his yellow gown emerge two slender hands, also of the colour of bone, resting on each arm of a seat which has been carved from a single massive ruby. So, straight away, that's somewhat different. It's a slightly different tack, isn't it? So yeah. So, basically, the first chapter's all present tense, isn't it? Yeah. And he, he used that in, I think, Revenge of the Rose as well, when he just he kind of described a battle mm. after it had finished. But, yeah, it was, it's completely different to everything else. And it kind of it describes him as completely differently as well, yeah. doesn't it? You, you kind of know, right, okay... And it's kind of re- reiterated through the first kind of bit of the book that this guy is not human. Yeah. In case you were confused before by his, like, strange garb, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's he's not human, he looks different. Mm. Mocock obviously likes this character. Mm. Yeah, so we've got... The idea of Elric has developed, and, and later on that same page it describes the Melnibonians as, I think, half-human. So yeah. we're already distancing the Melnibonians from what they were in the Dreaming City, his first story, which was a decadent ancient yeah, civilization yeah. With moustaches. With moustaches, yeah. yeah. And now we're talking about a half-human race, which is yeah, yeah. substantial differences. And actually, once we get into the, the stuff later on about the, the barbarians at the gates, there are distinct similarities between what they're intending to do and their reasons for doing it. Yeah, and the dream as between the Mabden and the Vadag. Oh yeah, there is in, that. In as well. Yeah, yeah. Well there's there's very much a parallel conversation, isn't mm. there? Which seems a bit kind of crowbarred when he's in the middle of a fight, but he's did you have that Which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I've got to say. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and we'll get to that. But it's also after doing the Dreaming City, it's kind of like uh, a prequel to the Dreaming City as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Slightly different version yeah. of the attack of yeah, yeah. Anemria. It totally is. So he's on his throne in a dragon-winged helmet. Looking pretty did. swish in his yeah, yellow yeah. robes and a dragon-winged helmet. Black. Get, yeah, get the first reference to the Actorius stone, which do, yeah. becomes a little bit relevant further. A bit of a MacGuffin, but yeah. a, a thing of power. And uh, he's he's sitting there, fingering the stone on his ring, <laughs> moping, yeah. pondering moral issues... While he's caught at the bottom of the steps, yeah. all dance, yeah, like and his moral issues, elegant ghosts. Yeah, his moral issues don't seem to be that complex, do they? It's um, shall I be a bit evil? <laughs> shall, shall I not? Yeah, yeah, it's like oh, the rest of the world. Why do they hurt us so yeah. much? Yeah, I mean, torturing people. It's not for everyone, is it? <laughs> Maybe I need to read a bit more. But I think one one of the other things that it points out in the first few pages is how weak he is yeah. and how he is sustained with drugs. Yeah, he was. He caused the death of his mother. His birth he caused did. the death of his mother. He was the son of Sadric the 86th and he was only kept alive by sorcery and is only now sustained by sorcery, herbs and potions. And as a result, he kind of became a reader 
and a geek. <laughs> so get ourselves a reader. Yeah, so he's, he's like he's, he's a weakling geek. What well, says here that he can barely uh, able to raise his hand if he doesn't have his drugs? Yeah, that's quite weak. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Yakun, his cousin, on the other hand. Oh yes. Well, and and Yakun is foremost among his countrymen who doubt Elric and think him not a true Melnibarnian. He's a a proper jock. He's he's a perfect foil. Really. And to be fair, he's probably, if you look at it and read through the, the kind of culture which we'll touch on, he's probably the perfect Melnibonian, really. You know, he, if, you, if you're talking top Melnibonians, your top three, he'd be there, wouldn't he? Yeah. El, Elric, you know, in the, the lower echelons of uh, the top Melnibonians. Right, let's just say his cousin Erkun is the worst kind of rival. He's hot, slick, arrogant respected, loved, and in the eyes of his peers is a true Melnibarnian. Yeah, yeah. And probably conditions his hair. Yeah, well, he does say that um, his dark features at once handsome and saturnine are framed by long black hair, waved and oiled. Yeah, oily hair, yeah. not so oily, much. Oily hair. Yeah. Mm, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm not keen on that. Maybe that's the de rigueur in Melnibarnian, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. There's, the description of his court is, is kind of... A1 Moorcock, as he describes Elric, Elric's opinion of the uh, of the carryings on. But down on the mosaic floor of the court, Prince Yerkin can be seen in all his finest silks and furs, his jewels and his brocades, dancing with a hundred women, all of whom are rumoured to have been mistresses of his at one time or another. His dark features at once handsome and saturnine are framed by long black hair, waved and oiled, and his expression, as ever, sardonic, while his bearing is arrogant. Yeah, he's got a heavy brocade cloak as well. Mm, mm. And it says, Few resent his arrogance, and those who do keep silent, for he's known to be a considerable sorcerer himself. Also, his behaviour is what the court expects and welcomes in a Melnibonian noble. It is what they would welcome in their emperor. Yeah, so already mm. Elric's not that popular, is he? No, no. So, Ekun's arrogantly dancing around, enjoying the day. Elric's on his throne, moping and wishing... He could potentially be anywhere else and completely bored by what's going on down below. But then, of course, things soon change when a new arrival swerves into view and sweeps aside Elric's melancholia because Cimmeril, Yekun's sister, arrives. Every Brit are brothers equal and Elric's best friend. And there's an interesting bit where it says Elric regrets that he can't have a sit on the ruby throne behind, beside him. Hmm. She's got to sit on the step below him. Sad times. Yeah, so he's, he's kind of he's in his gilded cage. He's got all this power. He resents everything. He's the emperor. If he wanted to plant her on the throne beside him, he could do. But he's kind of waiting for the he's wedding. He's a bit of a coward as well. Yeah, maybe. he is. So he's like, oh, this is all rubbish. Well, this, this is before obviously he got Stormbringer. So yeah. this is Stormbringerless Elric, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you know, somebody say completely changes personality. Yeah. So he's, he's, he resents the traditions of Malnibonet, but he's not challenging them. From his, he's in a complete position of privilege and power, but he's not challenging no, no, he's any just, of these he's traditions. He's just sat there going, oh, I wish I could do this, yeah. but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, and, and, and that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because given the events of the Dreaming City, yeah. the choice of mode in which he does challenge the traditions of Malnibonet it's kind of like going from not to 120. It is a bit, isn't it? Going, mm. oh, I'm a bit upset, you know, this is a bit rubbish, the yeah. dancing's boring, yeah. too, I'm going to burn the city down real good. Yeah. Yeah. So they chat, enjoy each other's company for a while while the court continues to gossip. Well, one thing I did want to pull up whilst we're in that area is yeah. uh, Melnibonian music. 
Ah, well, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second, because we'll, we'll read that bit out, and it, it comes very shortly after this. It does. So, the music swells, the music fades, the courtiers dance on, though many eyes are upon Elric and Cimmeril as they talk at the top of the dais. The speculation. When will, El- when will Elric announce Cimmeril as his empress to be? Will Elric revive the custom that Sadric dismissed, of sacrificing twelve brides and their bridegrooms to the Lords of Chaos in order to ensure a good marriage for the rulers of Melibonet. It was obvious that Sadric's refusal to allow the custom to continue brought misery upon him and death upon his wife, brought him a sickly son, and threatened the very continuity of the monarchy. So everybody's having a bloody good gossip about him. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think I, I have... Have I skipped past the bit about the choir? Yeah, yeah, you missed it. Oh, right, go yeah. back, go back. It was, um... There we go. From the galleries, the music grows louder and more complex as the slaves, specially trained and surgically operated upon <laughs> to sing but one perfect note each, are stimulated to more passionate efforts. Even the young emperor is moved by the sinister harmony of their song, which in few ways resembles anything previously uttered by the human voice. Why should their pain produce such marvellous beauty, he wonders? Or is all beauty created through pain? Is that the secret of great art, both human and Melnibonian? Yeah. So what do you reckon that sounds like? Um, yeah. But, but I, 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 I want to, so. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to recreate it. But no. Yeah. Um, it's not, yeah. Again, not for everyone. So if if he digs the butthole surfers, all power to him. Yeah. Not quite. No, I think it's probably going to be like a, an atonal choir, a bit like a kid's choir, really. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. What, what what it does indicate and what it does prove quite quite categorically is that um, he doesn't give a toss about the suffering of other people. No, no. He's, he's essentially bored by it. Yeah. This is the kind of interesting things where if they did a true representation of Elric in a, a TV yeah, series and they include things like this, this is how they can make it somewhat different. Air Coons decided it's time to be a massive knobber. Yeah, he has. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he decided now was the time to... Big himself up and bring down the albino. That's right. So he's, he's absolutely determined to test Elric's tolerance and outs himself as the ambitious villain he really, really is and that he yeah, yeah. wants the throne he's going to wind him up. Elric and Aeacum's exchange here is it's probably fair to say much more detailed and revealing than the paltry bombast <laughs> <laughs> exchange in the Dream Which is City. a shame, yeah. You know, by an hour six breast aside. Yeah. But Elric's calm responses just inflame his, uh, his quite unsophisticated sniping yeah. and wind him up yet further. And it is a bit like kids throw wind each other up, though, isn't it? It is. It's like, totally. oh, why are you dancing, Elric? Do you yeah. not, not fancy? Yeah. Oh, Do you like dancing? Oh, you're bored? Yeah. Oh, I bet you're bored. Look, he's really being bored. Yeah. And Elric going, well, I'm not bored, actually. Yeah, well, I'm not bored, because yeah. I, I love watching everybody else dance. It's yeah, great. It's, I can yeah. take pleasure from yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Don't oh, yeah. believe me. What, can't you dance? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah. So, meanwhile, Elric's ally and Lord of the Dragon Caves dive into Var. Yeah. Big famous diamond. for many stat blocks in many games. Well, many years to game. He's standing by ready to leap into action just in case yeah, everything yeah. goes slightly wrong. But but it doesn't, because Elric pretty much holds his own, but the, the exchange does get quite terse. It does a bit, doesn't it? It the, does, yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't get cross, so I reckon that would probably be winding Yerkun up even more. Yeah. So I think we're at that point now where we need to each take on a piece of dialogue from one of the characters. Oh, Christ. So I think... Uh, I think I'll be Yer uh, Coon oh, in this. Right. Let's, let's read the following. 
Simmerell was aghast. She said urgently, Yakun, if you would live. And then Yakun goes on to say, I would not care to live if the soul of Melnibane perished, and the guardianship of our nation's soul is the responsibility of the Emperor. And what if he should what if we should have an Emperor who failed in that responsibility? An Emperor who was weak, an Emperor who cared nothing for the greatness of the Dragon Isle and its folk. The hypothetical question, cousin. For such an emperor has never sat upon the ruby throne, and such an emperor never shall. At this point, Davin Tavar comes up, touches Yakun on the shoulder. Prince, if you value your dignity and your life. Elric raised his hand. There's no need for that, Divin, me old mucker. Prince Yakun merely entertains us with an intellectual debate, fearing that I was bored by the music and the dance, which I'm not. He thought he would provide the subject for a stimulating discourse. I am certain that we are both stimulated, Prince Yokoon. Elric allowed a patronising warmth to colour his last <laughs> sentence. Yeah, which so, I didn't really carry off. Yeah, there, yeah. But, you know. so, so at this point, Yokoon's just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, Yokoon's not happy. And Elric shuts things down. Worth to tangle bones. Ah, tangle bones. Fair tangle bones. Yeah. And tangle bones brings his cloak... And they'll leave. Yeah, Coon, needing to serve first, continues to posture and, and be an arse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Coon just does come across as a bit of a stroppy teenager, doesn't he? Mm. Um, mm. And, and to, to be fair, they both come across as, as yeah. very varying kind of incarnations of teenagers. Maybe yeah. that's in my mind because I've got a stroppy teenager. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's it's almost the dichotomy of the two. One really angry and the yeah. other one just like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Everything's rubbish. Yeah. I'm off to listen to the Smiths. Yeah. Or, you know, less... I, I think at this stage, because we've read The Dreaming City, it's, you know, you automatically identify Yakun as the villain. And there's also that part of me that, you know, I was a bit of a, a geek at school. Hmm. So I, do I identify more with Elric, the guy who yawns and is bored and just kind of thinks... Well, technically, is this how all art is created when slaves <laughs> have had their vocal cords operated on to, to, to be able yeah. to reach certain things? Or is Yakun, you know, more identifiable, but, you know, he's just basically a dickhead jock? Yeah, but you think about culturally, so for a Malnabonian culture, Yakun's like a Malnabonian. Mm. You've got Sadric didn't follow the culture, cultural norms, so mm. El- he was basically given a. A weak child, yeah. for example. Should have sacrificed them brides and brides. Yeah, exactly, you know. What was he thinking? Yeah. And Elric's not really following the customs, so everybody thinks he's a bit of a goon. Yeah. It is, you know, it's all around that thing, isn't it, of that culture and not following the culture. Because mm. ultimately, if you think about a villain from a Malinabone perspective, it's Elric, isn't mm. it? Well, yeah. For us, certainly their villain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so for us, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, Coombe's a bit of an arse, isn't it? Yeah. You know? And Mel Bonies are a bit arsey mm. as well. And knowing what we know about the Dreaming City, if we were on that, that, that barbarian fleet, Elric would still be the villain. Yeah, yeah. They're exactly. all the villains. They're all yeah. dirty villains. The yeah. different shades of dirty. Yeah, which... And if you think about, you know, we mentioned the, the TV show, a lot of that first kind of couple of chapters it is very much a Game of Thrones people mm. standing around going, mm, no, mm. you fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It will be interesting to see how, how they do it. I actually really like the way that we've approached this, essentially using the Dreaming City as like a prologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Right, 
Chapter three is really an interlude, and it's Cimmeril and Elric off, and it's riding. The, and yeah, and pretty much the only thing you can glean from that, unless you you know, is he uses the weather to reflect mood again, doesn't yeah. he? So it's all really sunny. They go off and have a shag in their cave. Yeah, brilliant. They're on the way home. Uh, the storm comes. Yeah. Everybody's a bit upset. And and the weird thing is, Simmeril looks look at looks at Elric, you yeah. know, where all his hair's blown around, making him look a bit mental. Yeah. And she goes, "Ooh, you can see, you know, it's ooh. We're never going to be happy again." Yeah, that's right. Oh, I've just had a premonition. Yeah, and she says, "Yeah, you see the doom in all things." Yeah. Which is basically, oh, cheer up, mate. Yeah. 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 He, he is mega emo. There there are a couple of things I picked up from this chapter, other than it's kind of like a, a, yeah. a necessary yeah. way of establishing their relationship. He's, she's not only his best friend, she's not only intellectually his equal, but they're also nobbing in caves. Yeah. But there's, there's a couple of interesting things which make, make it slightly different from the Dreaming City description of of the island, which was basically Elric loved getting back because the smell of decay yeah, was Yeah, it's one of his favourites. Whereas now they're talking about, you know, Mokot's talking about pine forests, foxes. Mm. So there's obviously like sort of a... A, a delightful, whimsical fairy tale element to uh, to the island, but he also says that basically nobody but the slaves go there. Nobody, none of the Melniburnians really go there. So this is like Elric's escape out into areas where yeah. he's not going to get tracked down. But there's also a nice passage which I think starts to introduce a certain element about Elric, and certainly comes into play in the later books around the the poisonous berries. There were many such peculiar berries and herbs on Melnibidae, and it was to some of them that Elric owed his life. Others were used for sorcerous potions and had been sown generations before by Elric's ancestors. Now few Melnibidaeans left Imria even to collect these harvests. Only slaves visited the greater part of the island, seeking the roots and the shrubs which made men dream monstrous and magnificent dreams, for it was in their dreams that the nobles of Melnibidae found most of their pleasures. There had ever been a moody, inward-looking race, and it was for this quality that Amiria had, had come to be named the Dreaming City. Now, knowing what we know about the future of Elric books, this idea of the Melniburnian dreaming yeah, yeah, yeah. actually ends up being a key thread throughout most of the latter books. For yeah. two reasons, I think. One is it's a fantastic plot device to allow Moorcock to drop in an entire novel which takes place while he's strapped to the mast of Jagri and Man's flagship. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. Um, but also, the key characters like Una the Dream Thief yeah, end up yeah. coming to the fore. So that's that's kind of the first time we get that indication that dreaming is a massive part of Melnibanean culture and lifestyle, other than just getting massively mashed and having dreams yeah, yeah. for the sake of getting mashed and having dreams. Nalibur seems a bit livelier in the, in this section. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's more to it, um, and the seeds being planted for things that come further down the line. And then, as you say, they find a cave. They get jiggy and tender, um, but on the way back, Simmeril has her premonition as she watches him ride through a suddenly descended storm, which again is a nice passage. But ooh, what a spoiler for listeners! Read it; it's very good. Yeah, there's another bit in it where I think Elric was saying about. Um the Melnibonians control the demons and not vice versa when they're talking about the Lords of Chaos. Ah. Which was quite interesting because obviously it's very much the other way around. Yeah. It's perception of it. Because the gods aren't really mentioned, are they, in, 
ticket across this bit, the first yeah, book that I've there's, mentioned. There's, when, when he's having the discussion with the barbarian captain in a yeah, couple yeah. of chapters' time, it, yeah, yeah. It, it gets mentioned. So on return, Elric is met by the captain of his guard and asked to attend the Tower of Monshanjik. That's, yeah. That's... Which sadly sees the end of the rule of three apostrophes in tower names, which we thought would establish in the Dreaming City. Yeah, it was disappointing. Yeah, that? yeah. Um, but we could just drop some in anyway. Yeah, I think when we do our inevitable, massive, two-year role-playing campaign yeah, based there'll, upon there'll be three the Hunt for Elric, there will be three apostrophes yeah. in the Tower of Monshanjik. And there follows a, a really decent passage that depicts the docks, the trading areas, the part of him in rear. Yeah, it the makes flavor. it real, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really yeah. great. It's, yeah. There's about a page just describing, in total, just describing his journey from when the captain of the guard meets him to get him to where he's going, yeah. which is really cool. It gives it lots and lots of flavour. Yeah. But of course, the, the upshot is we, we go down there to meet Dr. Jest. <laughs> Dr. Jest, I was, I was reading this again this morning. Yeah. Dr. Jest, brilliant. Can be described as a very thin man. Yeah. Yeah. I can't actually I think I counted the times he used the word thin to describe it. it must be in its thirties. Yeah. But yeah, Doctor Jess, brilliant. But I, the weird thing is, is you think about the Melnabonians and kind of um, some of the names, and then you just got Doctor Jest. Doctor Jest. <laughs> yeah, and Tanglebones. Yeah. Which just seem to be two really weird names compared to everybody else's. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jest, who basically is a performing artist of torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's very thin. He has a thin scalpel. So Dr. Jest has got a bunch of spies that they've captured from the the upstart young kingdoms who've been attempting to discover the secrets of the the maze of channels that form the approach to the harbour. So Jest has uh, has been torturing them. There's some blokes, there's a woman, there's a small child... He's been gradually stripping them of their skin in order to torture them. Elric turns up, so like, oh, God, what? <sighs> and uh, so Elric, irritated by this break in his day, sits back to watch Dr. Jest. Dr. Jest returned to his charges and, reaching out with his free hand, expertly seized the genitals of one of the male prisoners. The scalpel flashed. There was a groan. Dr. Jest tossed something onto the fire. Elric sat in the chair prepared for him. He was bored rather than disgusted <laughs> by the rituals attendant upon the gathering of information, the discordant screams, the clash of chains, the thin whisperings of Dr. Jest, all served to ruin the feeling of well-being he'd retained even as he reached the chamber. So it's like, yeah. you know, he's just been out, had as well. oh, he's had a shag in a cave, he's had an arse ride, and now he's like, oh, God's sake, oh, do Dr. I have to? Dr. Jest, come on, you know, appreciate <laughs> what you're doing. Sit through this? Well, I think it's just the yeah, when that particular bit I, I kind of wrote down as well, just like tossed into the fire, it was like, ugh. <laughs> and there's there's kind of another bit later on where it's uh, shapeless lumps on the chain. Shapeless lumps of meat, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that bit, and it's like one of them still quivered with life. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, ugh. And at that, at that point, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's got the information they required. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, all good. Yeah. There's another bit here that says, it's not that Elric was inhumane, it's just that he was still a Melnibonean. He'd been used to such sights since childhood. He could not have saved the prisoners, even if he had desired, without going against every tradition of the Dragon Isle. And again, it's the Dragon Isle. It's their traditions. The traditions that, if they were broke, shot poor Divin Tarkan to his death. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, diving tiger. Yeah, alas. So, anyway, we find, or Dr. Jest eventually finds, through the torture of his subjects, that they were only there to confirm intelligence and that a barbarian attack is imminent. Yeah. Immerment. It's Immerment. Immerment was in chapters four. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, an, an attack is imminent. Right, and uh, on that bombshell, let's just break and get another bottle of beer. Right, we've just uh, refreshed our IPA. We now have a... Pet cat session IP. Yeah, it's uh, from Gypsy Hill. Yeah. It's got a man with an anorak on the front of it. Here's some battling. Bravo. Mm. Yeah, delicious. So, battle time. Elric gathers his captains. Yerkun is still being a complete tit. Yeah. And saying, You're such a weakling, cousin. Maybe you should just, you know, take a rest. Yeah, he calls him out in front of everybody, doesn't he? So yeah. he's, he's basically going, Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'll do it. Yeah. But I think the other thing as well, he um, he's wasted the dragons, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. And then El- Elric uh, gives his, whilst giving them a pep talk, his captain's a pep talk, basically downs Aircoon again with help from diving yeah. Tavar. Yeah, so Tavar, you know, he's a bit upset they can't use his dragons because yeah. Aircoon yeah, borrowed them. So, yeah. Uh, Chase down some pirates. Yeah, as you do. Yeah, just because you know, it was somebody. Logistically, he made something of an error there. Although yeah. Elric says we don't need the dragons. But the other thing about the dragons in in kind of the Morcott books as well is they sleep for centuries, don't yeah. they? Yeah. So they basically go out flying, and then they get really knackered for about hundred years and have yeah. a bit of a kick. You, you use them, the knackered. You've yeah. got to use them sparingly. Yeah. So Elric said, "You know what? I'm doing this." He says to Yakun. I thank you for your concern, Prince Yakun, but an emperor must exercise his body as well as his mind. I will command the warriors tomorrow. When Elric arrived back at his apartments, it was to discover that Tanglebones had already laid out his heavy black war gear. He had. Here was the armour which had served a hundred Melnibonean emperors, an armour which was forged by sorcery to give it a strength unrivalled on the realm of Earth, which could, so rumour went, even withstand the bite of the mythical Runeblades, Stormbringer and Mornblade, which had been wielded by the wickedest of Melnibonair's many wicked rulers before being seized by the lords of the higher worlds and hidden forever in a realm where even those lords might rarely venture. So if you if this is your introduction to Elric, this is the very first mention of Stormbringer. Yeah, and Mornblade. Yeah, and Mornblade, which I, th- I think I think Mornblade is referenced at the end of Stormbringer, the novel, isn't it? Because... I think he has Mornblade, doesn't he? Uh, Diving Slom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Slom's not a good name. It's not a great name. No. It sounds like Slurm. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just Slurm. Uh, if you're from Hull. If you're from Hull, it's Slurm. Yeah, it's Diving Slurm. Yeah, that would be bad. Yeah, it's not good. But yeah, Mornblade uh, comes back, doesn't it? Yeah. But we also find out there, and I think this, this, this adds a lot more amusing reading the Dreaming City after this. If you recall the death of Tanglebones and and, yeah. and and what a hoot that was. When we found out that actually Tanglebones wasn't just his butler, but it was his teacher. He taught him swords, he taught yeah, him yeah. archery, he taught him pretty much everything he knows. Yeah. Um, and he made a great sandwich. Yeah, and yeah. it's a cr- cracky sandwich, but basically he's, he's been Elric's handyman, struck teacher, struck butler, struck valet. Is he pretty much his um, entire life. Batman's butler, isn't he? Yeah, he's he is uh, Alfred. Alfred, isn't he? I was thinking of Jeeves. He's Alfred. I, I, I would love to see a scene in a Batman movie 
where Alfred dying says, I'm sorry I failed you, Batman. And Batman goes, so you should be. <laughs> yeah, you idiot. <laughs> you fool. Um, if you don't know what we're on about, listen to episode one. Yeah. If you do know what we're yeah. about, please listen yeah. to it again. Well, um, Tangle agrees in conversation there that um, actually, although Elric is, is the tops, actually he's not quite the tops. Because yeah, yeah. might be better. And the other thing about Tangle Burns is going on. He's quite um, he's quite up for Elric going out to have a fight, and he's yeah. going, Elric, you know, should, should we go now? Oh, I need a bath. Yeah, yeah. He's sure. But at that point, Elric's like, oh, I'll just have a bath and a kip. Yeah, he's going. No, I'll just have a bath, and then he goes, oh, oh all right, then I'll get your stuff ready. Then I might have a sleep. Yeah. So <laughs> Tangle Burns is there. Yeah, you know, he's been polishing this armor for weeks. You know, <laughs> go. Oh, it's gonna be ace. You know. <laughs> Check it, check it out. It, you can see your face in that. Elric, look. Oh, he's having a kip. You know, disappointed for Tangle Bones again. Track like shit, I think. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm sure he gets. I'm sure he's got a comfy bed and he gets fed yeah. well. Phil Collins as Tangle Bones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, why not? Actually, we didn't cast Tangle Bones. Did we? we'll, but we'll, we'll just come back. Discuss to that at the end. Yeah. So Elric has a bath and a kip. He does. And then. Uh, right. All true heroes. We get to fight time. This, this. Oh, Adam, just one thing oh, before on. we burst into Do it. fight time. We've got the fact that um, he's got a five foot broadsword, which is said to belong to Ubeck. Oh. Ubeck of Malador. Yeah. Who I always imagined as Bobby Charlton with a big sword. I don't know why, when I read it, I'm sure he was like, he had a bold, probably a bold paint, that was yeah. the usual thing, but I imagine he had wispy hair as well. Mm. The Bobby Charlton of uh, lawful heroes. Yeah, that, so that, you, that could work. Uh, so Ubeck was in the, he was with... Oh, um, was that My Sheller of the My Sheller of the yeah, so Ubeck was a short story, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. My Sheller. Yeah. And he was, her, he was her first conquest. Yeah. And he went off to basically get rid of the chaos at the edge of the world, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and that's the first short story in Weird of the White Wolf, Yeah, I think. it rings a bell, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's linked to that, so Ubeck's back, Yeah. and Elric's got a lawful sword, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And once again, we fall foul of pronunciation, because my entire life I've always thought it was Orbeck. It probably is. Orbeck, Ubeck, you know, we know. Pronunciation is yeah. generally wrong. <laughs> my, and my pronunciation, <laughs> as we call it. Dude, we're from all. We barely yeah, speak exactly. English anyway, so... And know, I live in so my accent is all over the place. Yeah. So once we get to fight time, I, th- I think we've got some really brilliant Mocock of the next yeah, yeah. ten pages. Yeah, yeah. Because his writing style in the 60s was great. It was, it was very spare. Whereas... It's a little bit more developed now, and it takes a little bit more time over the action, particularly the build-up to the action. But it still drives forward. It's still cinematic. He sets up the tension of, of the waiters, Elric and Admiral Megum Colin. He's, yeah. Um, are, are kind of waiting around on the battle badge because Elric has come up with his strategy, which is a fairly simple strategy. Wait for them all to come in, and then yeah. we'll sort them out. And then we'll go around the back. Yeah. Yeah. Bravely, heroically, yeah. and so them. so they know that the um, the barbarian fleet has got the maze figured out. Mm. So we'll just, oh, we'll, oh, we'll just wait in these these coves until they've all come in, and then we'll pile in and smash them. So Elric and Admiral Admiral Megan Collin discuss the coming fight on on his flagship battle barge, the Son of Pyre, mm. uh, lying in wait for the barbarians. And there's just it's barely more than a sentence. 
and when I read it, I read it and I visualise it like it's yeah. it's it's cinematic. And all it is, it's hissed. Admiral Megan Colin Crane forward. Was that the sound of an R? Eric nodded. I think so. Yeah. Now they heard regular splashes as of rows of oars dipping in and out of the water and they heard the creak of timbers. The Southlanders were coming. It's just, you know, I don't know why I picked that out because it's so simple, but it's it's just, if you were storyboarding this for a movie... Yeah, that would be it. That would it? be so fucking yeah. easy. Yeah. So easy. And then, of course, the old piling. Well, yeah, Coon uses sorcery, doesn't he? So he does. That's the first a... mention of him... He's supposed to be a sorcerer, but he yeah. actually does the sorcery, not Elric. He creates a mist. A peculiar Melon mist. style. Yeah, a peculiar mist. Yeah. But you can see through it if you're a Melnibonian, but not if uh, you're a southern barbarian. Right. So he, he summons his Merlin Excalibur mist. Yeah, yeah. And then they all pile in, shatter the barbarian fleet, and... There's a couple of pages of really fantastic action descriptions yeah, yeah, and, and other bits and pieces, but then we get this beautiful interlude where Elric faces off with a barbarian captain on a deck, and they get into a, a quick discourse, and he finds out why Melnibonet is so hated. And this is where the, the, the parallel with Corum and the Mabden chief... Yeah, yeah. The Mabden chief is, is a much bigger arsehole. Yeah, Glandith. Yeah, yeah Glandith the Crow, yeah. yeah he's, he's uh, but basically, they hate him because they're sorcerers, they hate him because of the customs, they hate him because they're arrogant, they hate him because of their pretensions to godhood, they hate him because of their relationship with chaos lords. So they really do view them as completely alien. Although there is an element of greed. He does call him a white-faced demon. He does, yeah. And the, the, there is that element of greed, and, and Elric calls him out and says, "Yeah, you're just greedy. Yeah. There, there is one thing I just want to bring up to yep. just bust the tension yep. between what we're coming up, which is more a kind of flashback to what we're talking about, Elric's uh, dressed like a burke. Yeah. So I'll just, uh, I'll just show it here. Rushing forwards <laughs> to where he saw the Southland captain dressed all in crude checkered armour a checkered circuit over that. So it's the big into check. Yeah. So it's like they're all dressed. That is nicely consistent. Yeah, yeah. So they're all wearing gingham. Yeah. Which Elric obviously saw and went, checks are for me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going for that. Yeah. I'll get myself a kilt. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's really wonderful to note that in the future when Elric does his wandering of the Young Kingdoms, of all the things he discovers... Check is the way forward. Gingham and striker loom pants yeah, yeah, are the exactly. way forward. Yeah. It's kind of wonderful. Yeah. So he, he has this confrontation with his captain. and He's not named, is he? He's not named, no. no. But this thing about the Chaos Lords, Elric says, the Chaos Lords no longer have any interest in the affairs of Malnibonet. They took away their power nearly a thousand years ago. Elric watched the captain carefully, judging the distance between them. Perhaps that is why our power waned. Or perhaps we merely became tired of power. Be that as it may, the captain said, wiping his sweating brow. Your time is over. You must be destroyed once and for all. And then he groaned, for Elric's broadsword had come under his chequered breastplate and gone up through his stomach and into one of his lungs. <coughs> yeah, so, so he distracts him with a bit of, <laughs> bit of fancy talk. Yeah. yeah, so it gets him talking. Yeah. So talk a bit well, about... Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, I'm not, here's a tactic. I'll talk about theology for a bit. Yeah. When he's when he's really getting into it, I'll just like stab him through the lungs. Yeah. Well, th- th- this captain's quite graceful, I think. He is, in his yeah. reaction. One knee bent, one leg stretched behind him. Elric began to withdraw the long sword, 
looking up into the barbarian's face, which had now assumed an expression of reconciliation. That was unfair, Whiteface. We had barely begun to talk and you cut the conversation short. You are most skilful. May you writhe forever in the higher hell. Farewell. Which is a pretty good... Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's better than going, ah! Yeah, it's better than, than falling, <laughs> falling into the brine, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty Imagine if that was in a in a TV show. Yeah, that would all be cut. Yeah, and it'd just be. Ah, yeah, the... you writhe in hell forever. Have, have you ever seen the Lone Wolf and Cub films? Yes. There are bits where where people get killed in that way, where the while the blood is spurting out of the yeah. neck, they have little monologues like that. Yeah, and that's what that's what an Elric TV series needs. It almost needs to be in the style of a yeah a samurai film. Yeah, yeah, it that totally would be does. awesome. And uh, Elric follows that up by uh, Mike. chopping his head off him. and kicking his head overboard. Yeah, he's, he's a bit over the top, that, isn't he? Yeah. You know, he's just stabbed him, he's dead. Yeah. Oh, well, just... Yeah. It's, it's quite petulant. Like, yeah. right, I've just had to have this boring conversation <laughs> with this captain in order to basically do a dirty on him yeah. and run him through. So I'm going to cho- I'm gonna take two hacks at his neck to chop his head off yeah. and boot it overboard. And then you get yeah, Coomeran in the back very nice one, Elvin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah Coomeran runs up, makes a pithy comment. Yeah, it's nice one. <laughs> oh. yeah. So the barbarian fleet's routed, routed, routed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most sank, but a few escape. And yeah, Coomeran wants to pursue, but Elric's weary. He's like, oh, I'm knackered. Well, I think that, that the end of that chapter is when he suddenly really hates Yakun, doesn't he? Yeah. And that's basically because he came up to him after he just booted somebody's head into the water. Yeah. Uh, then Yakun came up behind Auric and he was still grinning. You fight fiercely and well, my lord emperor. That dead man was right. Right? Elric glared at his cousin. Right? Aye, in his assessment of your prowess. And chuckling, Yakun went to supervise his men. And after that, Elric's really pissed off, isn't yeah. he? He's not a happy man. Yeah. He did not why he he had refused to hate Yerkin before, but now he did hate Yerkin. Yeah. And it's all because of that. Might be a little bit too late. Yeah, yeah. Too little, too late. Yeah, you should have thought about that, shouldn't you? Because Yerkin wants to pursue the remainder of the barbarian fleet. Um, Elric's like, oh no, I'll let him go. <laughs> Megan Collin at this point, he's not impressed with Elric either. He thinks that you know they should be punished yeah, for yeah. daring. And that's one of his mates. Daring isn't it? to do it, and Megan Collin is one of yeah, his mates. Yeah. So Elric and Yekun have another stare down, but then yeah, Elric's like, God, alright, we'll do it. So so they chase him down. But then there's that last little bit where there was a mysterious light in Yekun's eyes as he turned away to relay the orders. So Yekun's got an ulterior motive for this. He's, he's not that legit, is he? Really? He's up to no good, isn't he? He's, he's a up to no good. So the fleet gives chase, drugging the slave oarsmen to row faster, even though it'll kill him in a yeah. couple of hours. Yeah. Elric sips wine. And muses over life. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> you know, it's so, so they're chasing down these southern barbarian fleets, and he's just like supping wine. He'd, slaves are bringing him food, but he doesn't want any food, he's got no appetite because he's, he's, he's too weak. But he's supping wine, thinking, ah, maybe the life of a wanderer in the young kingdoms. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. could be the life for me. Yeah. yeah. And then at, at this point, Megan Collins slips away. He does. Mm. Mm. Suspicious. And we never see or hear from him again in no. this part of the book. Anyway, so they start setting ships on fire and a barbarian ship ablaze heroically takes on the vast barge. Which is really cool, that bit. I think it is very the, cool. The other thing, it, it talks about the boiling sea as well, yeah. doesn't it? Which is always, if you ever read, if you ever saw a map of 
of kind of young kingdoms. You know, the boiling sea was there. It was like, no, oh, but that's really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's a really good bit. Yeah, it's, it's, and again, it's it's fantastic. Um, Michael Moorcock writing about killing and burning yeah. war and men burning, burning men falling overboard. But they um, they attempt to ram the son of Pyre and it crashes into the golden side of the battle barge and a lot of the men from the barbarian ship get on board and a fight starts yeah. while Elric's just sat there supping wine going, like nodding appreciatively he is isn't he yeah he, thinking he watches, oh, nice move he's barbarians watching, oh yeah nice one yeah oh that's and really he's, clever he's cause... kind of amused by it yeah yeah but... so rather than shouting out a warning to his men he's just like oh. and battle is joined yeah. Uh, yeah, Kuhn, of course, pops up again and says, oh, you know, you chill, you take yeah. it easy. And um, Elric's like, you know, whatevs, and uh, joins the fray. Yeah, you may call me weak. Yeah. And he staggers around as well, doesn't he? Because mm. he is obviously weak, mm-hmm. and he's, he needs his drugs back in Malnebone, and it's not, it's not looking good for the young man, is it? No, no. So, more fights, Elric kills a few more people, and then they win the day. Yeah. Elric gasps to Yeah, Kuhn, are we victorious, cousin? Yeah. Yeah, because like, oh, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he had a beard, he'd be stroking at yeah. that point, wouldn't he? He, he like, totally would. Yeah. So yeah, because like, oh, this, this seems like a fairly good opportunity. Megan Colin, nowhere to be seen. No. And then, of course, Yakun takes his chance. He does. He's a wrong'un. He is a wrong'un. But and El- he says... El- so El- Elric's desperately trying to... He realises that the writing's on the wall... Yakun stood over him. He unbolts a piece of the railing, throws it overboard, and he says to Elric, I was never a cautious man, cousin, as you well know. He placed a booted foot against Elric's ribs and began to shove. Elric slid towards the gap in the rail. He could see the black sea heaving below. Farewell, Elric. Now a true Melnibonean shall sit upon the ruby throne, and who knows, might even make Cimmeril his queen. It has not been unheard of. Again, incest. Yeah, yeah, you know, if you want to make it more villainous, have a bit of incest. Targaryens. Targaryens. Yeah. And Elric felt himself rolling, felt himself fall, felt himself strike the water, felt his armour pulling him down below the surface. And Yerkin's last words drummed into Elric's ears like the persistent booming of the waves against the sides of the golden battle barge. That's the end of book one. So for the second episode on the trot, Elric ends up in the drink Yeah. after a battle. Outside yeah. the gates, yeah, yeah, to the maze. This time in Volantano. You you got to think about when he, when Elric is in the dreaming the dreaming city story. He's a lot more. He's got a lot more now, hasn't he? Yeah. He's, he's just a burke, isn't he? Yeah. He really is. He's like, it's the equivalent of somebody going, uh, "I'm going to kill you because I'm going to nick your throne and yeah. possibly marry my sister." <laughs> and you really fancy, and Elric's there going. Yeah. Nah, you won't. Yeah. Oh, morality. Oh, the, the humanity of it all. Yeah. And then ends up being booted off a boat into the water. Yeah. It's like, mm, told you so. Mm. And to be fair, back in Melnabona, if you, if that was the news, it'd be like, oh, he tragically fell to his death. Everybody yeah. going, woo! Yeah. Let's kill some slaves and have some weird orchestra. And we'll 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 get to books two and three of Elric of Melnibane mm. in future episodes, but I would I suspect whether it's described or not, I suspect that the rest of Melnibane will be going, Yeah Coon, yeah, yeah Coon, yeah, yeah. you rule yeah. etc. So that was book one of Elric of Melnibane, written eleven years after the Dreaming City. Hmm. I think fairly substantial development to his writing style, much richer 
Yeah, I think... But still, driving and... and um, gets to the point. Yeah, I think the, the culture of it is quite interesting. I think if you, if you think about how books are now, it's probably more modern. Yeah. I, I don't want to use the word modern, but if you think about how yeah, I think modern, that makes sense. modern fantasy books now would actually potentially drag that whole yeah, Coon Elric bit out for about 4,000 pages, you mm. know what I mean? And, mm. and the Cimmeril character would probably be a bit more... Because she, she's a lot more fleshed out. Yeah. It's a... You know, in, in the other book, she's just like, um, I don't know what the phrase is, it's some refrigerator phrase, but she she's not, she hasn't got a character really, no. she's just like a prop mm. to, to make him do stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I think she, you think if you think about a TV show, that's where you'd start. Yeah. Oh, this would make an absolutely fabulous and um, first episode of a TV yeah, show. Yeah, and it would, yeah, you... You can almost see it, it would pan out for like half a series, yeah. you know, with various things happening in the background, yeah. with, you know, Smeorg and Baldhead getting up to no good in the background. Well, of course, we, we did talk about Smeorg and Baldhead in the last one, didn't we? We did. And, um, of course, he does pop up in this, but mm. what, 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 I, no, I won't go into it, because we'll save no. that for a future episode. Because there's another um, well-known and well-loved character from the Elric books who... Is in Elric of Melniponia, whilst uh, which I didn't remember at all. So it's again, once again, it's really interesting reading yeah. these again for the first time in years. We'll pick up on book two. Maybe do book two and book three in one go. We'll see how yeah. see how we go. Yeah. Um, I think because I think it's packed a lot into that first little book. Yeah, but um, I, you do think yeah. It's, if you started here, yeah, that would be. For, for a modern reader perspective it would yeah. make more sense because yeah. you'd be like right okay you yeah. know, that's how books are now yeah very soon we're probably going to head into traditional quest mode aren't we yeah yeah which I think it was it, it kind of got himself quite into by the time he was doing the second Coram trilogy certainly yeah yeah and the, most of the Hartman books are yeah must have a MacGuffin quest get MacGuffin I mean weirdly I think yeah of all these characters Coram's probably my favourite one even though yeah, I do. The the Corrin books, probably, the first three are probably my favourite books, mm. I think. Mm. But um, Elric's always been Mocock's love, almost, mm. hasn't it? From a fantasy well, character. Timing's dependent, we'll maybe get to Knight of Swords. Yeah. We shall see. But in the meantime, before we close, who would you cast as Elric? To be honest, I still, I still can't see it because mm. it depends on. How it's directed, and I don't, mm. I don't know. I, I think it's a tricky one because you don't want somebody too macho. You don't mm. want somebody. Yeah, I'd, Elric, I've no idea. Mm. I'd never have. I think there's never been an actor I've seen where I've gone, that'll be great for Elric. Yeah. And it all depends how they, they play it mm. Mm. and whether they go for the, the. The problem is, if you look at like the Lord of the Rings films and how they treat elves, they're pretty much like. Dudes with with pointy yeah. ears, weren't they? Yeah, there was only Liv Tyler who looked like an elf. Yeah. for me. Yeah. So, so what? The the thing that would worry me about a TV show would be again back to the Shannara thing, mm. where you've just got just everybody just with pointy ears. Yeah, just rubbish. I only saw about fifteen minutes of a Shannara episode. It was really really bad. Yeah, I watched two episodes of it, and uh, yeah. Never get that time back, mm. to be honest. Um, no. 
So I don't know what about you? Um, well, I, I do like the pastor's suggestion, um, that Eamon guy out, out of um, Twin Peaks The Return. Um, and I also like the idea of the younger Skarsgård guy who plays the clown in it. I think he's got a really, really good look. But I don't know, I just, I just think... Whenever you cast someone for whom a large portion of the show is going to be wielding a sword and killing people, hmm. they've got to look like they're capable of wielding a sword. Yeah, yeah. Because some of the worst casting decisions were made in, that were made in Game of Thrones were casting people who barely looked like they could lift a sword, let alone fight in a battle. So I'm not entirely sure. And I think all my casting desires for that type of thing come down to fancy casting anyway, like Bob Hoskins should be Smeagol bald head. Blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, w- I would like to... I think really, in order to make it work, you've got to cast an unknown. Yeah, I like Because otherwise yeah. you will constantly... Add in, it won't work. It, it's like if you think of like Tom Hiddleston, you know, the way he plays Loki, you could see him as a yeah, Kim kind of character, but it's yeah. exactly the same character, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Nobed brother, yeah. stroke, you know, trying to... Usurp, yeah, but he's, mm. it's that kind of character. Mm. He yeah. wants somebody sophisticated, and ultimately, I think for something like this, it, it's not that it doesn't matter who you cast, it's what you do right with yeah. it. Like, make sure that the Melnibonean culture is represented properly and that they are vile and I think that's what they said it alienating a fantasy horror. Yeah, thing didn't they? Which yeah. is fine, I think. Which is right. And that's what they need to go for. Because if you're going to do this episode, you've got to have Doctor Jest slicing people up and throwing the balls on a fire yeah. and torturing and cutting apart a child. Yeah, I think Doctor Jest is probably quite easy to cast, really, because there's so many people you see in these films who are kind of bit part characters. Yeah. Who you go, yeah, he'd be awesome. You need a modern Michael Berryman out the hills of eyes. <laughs> Some, like well, that. I don't know. I was thinking a bit more. Um, to be a bit more sophisticated, really, almost. I know he's got to be thin. Yeah. But yeah, it'll end up being Doug Jones, won't it? The guy who plays everybody thin in everything. Um, he was, he's the fish thing in Shape of Water, and he plays Sapien yeah. in Hellboy, and he plays the. Um, um, and he's actually quite a decent actor. I think he. Oh, he, de- he, he deserves a bit more screen time without being buried under makeup. And he is extraordinarily thin. You remember um, the film Seven? Yeah, yeah. The corpse of the guy who looks like his dead because he's so emaciated. Doug Jones. Well, there you go. Doug (laughs) Doug Jones for If you want want a skinny corpse or a skinny monster, skinny corpse or a skinny monster, Doug Jones. I hope I got his name right. Well, he could be the Duchess or Tanglebones. Probably get him in for there, couldn't he? Yeah, Tanglebones needs to be older, doesn't he? Yeah, potentially. Hmm. But it, it all depends how they approach it. You know, are you going to go through a, a Game of Thrones kind of realism mm. almost? Because a lot of fantasy shows before Game of Thrones were really shiny and crap. And I think that's another reason why they need to do it completely differently. And I know at the time that Dune miniseries got a lot of stick for having scenes where they basically put a lot of sand in a studio then put a massive matte painting up yeah. behind it. 
And I remember discussing that with um, one of my uncles, funnily enough, who was a massive Dune fan, and he was absolutely disgusted by that. He was like, it was just a big curtain <laughs> with, with a, some mountain range painted on it. Yeah. I was like, I love that. The way it was lit, the way it was shot. Yeah. You, knew, you know it's a matte painting when you watch the David Lynch film. Yeah, yeah. You know it's a matte painting, but it still looks amazing. Yeah. I'd love it if they just go for some kind of approach like that. Something a little bit avant-garde. Something a little bit different, and, and that comes down to the director and the creator, doesn't it? it yeah, you know, it, it it all it really does depend on that and and how they approach it. Because yeah. the thing is, a, a lot of the a lot of the Mocock imagery is completely bombed out, isn't mm. it? So you need somebody who's visionary who can bring yeah. that boiling sea in the background, yeah. just. And and get all that alienness to mm. it, and it's almost like you want a, a horror director in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, Clive Barker getting yeah. in and Well, I've, I've, yeah. Did you see Aquaman? I did. S- some of the imagery in Aquaman was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was very shiny, though. Wasn't yeah, it, it was, very, it was very shiny. But there were a couple of like weird slow motion bits that just looked like a painting come to life, which I thought mm. were absolutely fantastic. If they can pull that off on a TV budget. Yeah, then yeah. great. But ultimately, it's going to be a couple of years before any. It's going to be a couple of years before the Hawkmoon series makes it to screen, if at all. So we've got plenty of time to kind of get updated on news and just hope it doesn't turn out as shit as the War of the Worlds series. Yeah, because waited a year for that. But Holy then, shit. but then you look at um, for me the Dark Materials series done all right job. That's all right. There's, there's a couple of things that bug me about it, but on the whole, I'm really enjoying There's it. There's a couple of wooden actors in it. But yeah, um, but I've, I've, the key actors are, are getting it right. Yeah. Mrs. Coulter's excellent. Yeah, she's cool. Um, I think Lyra's great. I've, I've got some misgivings about it, but on the whole, I'm still watching it, so I'm quite happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, well, I guess that's probably about where we wrap it up for now, and we'll be back soon again for books two and three of Elric of Milnibane, and no doubt other bits and pieces as well as we go along the line. So once again, thanks again, Loz, no for for taking part. And, uh, well, I'll see you on the Moonbeam Roads. Indeed. Right, I've just clicked the recording button again, even after um, our closing salutations. Just because we just reminded each other that there was a Stormbringer screenplay in the 1970s. Yep. Which, if you have the Golanx edition of Stormbringer, it's in there. And Loz, you've read it. I have read it. I've read it. It's pretty wacky. It's it's not Stormbringer. Yeah. It's not Elric, it's Ehrlich. It is Elric. It's, all, it's almost... Um... Alex Scar score. Yeah, scores, yeah. It? It's it's basically they're going for an Erica's yeah. kind of feel for it. It's it's it pretty much is that, isn't it? It's the very plot, yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting and it's more it's more of an Erica's film. Yeah. Than a than an Elric film, but just to know, I think we should probably cover that. Yeah, yeah. It's on cool. a future episode. Yeah, yeah. And I think we the beginning of it was yeah. It would have made a very good film. Yeah. Airships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Yeah, cool. We'll cover that. Right. So, we'll finish again for the second time. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you. Bravo. Yeah. On the Moonbeam Roads, obviously. Where else? Mm-hmm. Ta-ra.
thanks once again to Loz for his excellent company in looking at this instalment of the Elric Saga. And thanks also to the good folks of Twitter for more lovely feedback on the show. Big shout outs to Menion, Jason, Dog Prophet, Anthony Picanti, Lapsed Gamer, Reactionary, Hoopmange, Don Dennis, <laughs> Johan Gottlieb Fitched, Eric Vincent Smichael, Corey Lee, Johnny Haddo, John Lays, DMN, and Zen for taking the time to chat, encourage, and share their shelfies. I'm seriously jealous of some of those additions. Top tier super gratitude this time, though, is due to the Chaos Engineers Fred and Norman, the show's new patrons. I was at the SFW weekender in Great Yarmouth when the emails dropped to tell me that they'd offered up some of their very own shekels to support this podcast. And, as the kids would say, I'm super stoked, and I hope to repair that investment by making Breakfast in the Ruins the best it can possibly be. I also bung them a special patron-only extrasode, in the style of a DVD extra, an early attempt to kick off the podcast looking at the first story of the Corum Halen RC book, The Knight of Swords, which didn't quite come off for one reason or another, although in no way due to my honourable guest on that occasion, Lindsay. He'll be back though. And by the way, I know I got that Corum pronunciation wrong, because it's Mocock after all, but please don't at me. Although, actually, on second thoughts, do at me, because these pronunciations are a pain in the arse, and it would be great to find out what you are all doing with them. Whilst at the Weekender, I also had the chance to have a really great talk with 2000 AD and Warhammer 40k artist Clint Langley about Mocock, and commissioned my very own Elric pick from his mighty pen. I know I've mentioned this already on the blog, but I'll post another picture of it along with this episode just because I'm so bloody pleased with myself. Anyway, that just about wraps up another episode, but just a reminder... You can find the show on all major podcasting platforms, including Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Pocket Cast, and others. Coming up soon, we'll be looking at book two and three of The Jewel in the Skull, where we'll actually meet Hawkmoon for the first time. We'll be looking at the Rituals of Infinity to uncover the secrets of Professor Faustaff and the multiple Earths. And Jerry Cornelius will face perhaps his greatest challenge. A guy that doesn't read any sci-fi or fantasy, and was born in Batley in the 80s. Who knows how that'll go. But with that, I'll bid you adieu, and I'll see you on the Moonbeam Roads.